Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and today we're going to hit another stop on our historic world tour of cocktail heritages, celebrating the launch of the Embitterment Heritage Collection of Cocktail Bitters right here on ModernBarCart.com. For those of you who don't know, Embitterment is our flagship line of cocktail bitters, and we've recently added four new members to the family, all based on cultural flavors and cuisines from around the world. If you'd like to check out brief descriptions of those, definitely hit up episode 31, where we do a brief intro of each product and a deep dive into the flavors of the Indian subcontinent to honor our liquid gold ancient trade bitters. Or you can just head over to the product section of modernbarcart.com and browse through product shots and descriptions of each of our four new flavors. Today, instead of jet setting off to a strange land, we're going to keep things a little closer to home, but only in a manner of speaking. Our subject is the cocktails and cocktail culture of the American frontier, and that is going to take us by definition to a few places that are a little wild, places where you got to let the horse pick its own path because there are no roads. But to quote a professor I once had, where we're going, we don't need roads. Before we jump into the history, the science, and the straight-up weirdness of frontier cocktails, I thought I'd take a minute here to introduce you to this episode's guest of honor, our frontier sarsaparilla bitters. When my team and I sat down to develop the Heritage Collection, we realized that a lot of our ingredients came from warm tropical locations. And I mean, that didn't really pose a problem because there's plenty of different cultures and flavors that developed in the tropics, lots of material. But what it did reveal is that we've probably been overlooking a lot of native flavors from our own continent. North America is pretty special in that it boasts terrains and temperate zones that cover almost the entire range of ecological systems found elsewhere in the world. So it stood to reason that we should be able to create a flavor palette that is uniquely North American. Turns out that wasn't as easy as it seemed for a couple different reasons. One, we don't like dealing with seasonal products here. That's just a logistical reality. If you, as a consumer, want a consistent handcrafted, and in many cases, certified USDA organic product year-round, then I, as the manufacturer, can't really risk getting a phone call from my produce distributor saying that, hey, by the way, apple season is over, or a strange Asian fungus wiped out every strawberry known to man. North America is rich in these seasonal fruits and vegetable products, but that didn't do us a whole lot of good as we sat out on our flavor quest. Another limiting factor was that because we are a nation of immigrants here in the United States, our national cuisine is based on flavors that were imported to our country, just like the spices and herbs that define them. So after a lot of time spent eliminating flavor candidates from our list, as well as pouring through Native American recipe books and botanical indexes, we finally arrived at our native North American brew. 
Frontier Sarsaparilla bitters balance the pungent, mentholated, terpene-driven flavor of woodsy ingredients like juniper berries, lemon balm, and hyssop with a deep, woody backbone of birch bark and Mexican sarsaparilla root and just a little bit of sweetness on the finish. And that sweetness comes from blueberries, which have a close analog in the European bilberry, but are, in fact, a truly North American native plant. But you may think, aren't blueberries super seasonal? You know, that thing you were just complaining about? Well, my friends, summoning up a little frontier ingenuity of our own, we found a way around the problem of seasonality. We used dried blueberries. When I talk about the flavor profiles of the Heritage Collection, you'll hear me speak a lot about tension, several different flavors pulling in different directions. And in the case of the Frontier Bitters, those basic flavor groups are sweet and fruity in the case of the blueberries, woody and mellow in the case of the birch bark and sarsaparilla root, and kind of grassy and mentholated in the case of our herbal components and juniper berries. And this is just a little reminder to keep that concept of tension between flavors front of mind as you create your own innovative flavors behind the bar. So now that you know all about the flavor profile of our Frontier Sarsaparilla Bitters, you may be wondering which cocktail is the best staging ground for your first experiment with this amazing woodsy concoction. And in truth, the answer is simple, the Frontier Old Fashioned. This cocktail is, as you would suspect, a simple old fashioned, made by swapping out our Frontier Sarsaparilla bitters for whatever aromatic bitters you'd otherwise be using in the drink. And as I've said before, I think simple cocktails are often the best place to test out new bitters or other cocktail ingredients like liqueurs and vermouths because you get the chance to experience the new flavor without a whole lot of noisy competition. But one thing I would encourage you to potentially modify when you make your Frontier Old Fashioned is the type of sugar you use. One thing we know about the staples available to folks in the frontier is that it wasn't all extremely fancy. It was usually the rougher stock that could handle changes in temperature and humidity as it traversed the mountains and the desert, maybe a little rainfall on the back of a mule. So pure, refined table sugar wasn't really encountered all that much on the frontier. Instead, consider using a darker, less refined sugar cube, something like sugar in the raw, Florida crystals, or... Even brown sugar might do you just fine. Also, for the sake of conversion here, just keep in mind that a half tablespoon of loose sugar is going to roughly approximate the size of the sugar cube you normally use in your old-fashioned. Finally, if you want to go above and beyond, you might consider making a molasses syrup by boiling two cups of sugar, one cup of water, and two tablespoons of molasses. Unlike sugar, molasses was significantly easier to store and transport on the frontier, and so it was used as one of the most common sweetening agents from the time our country was a scrappy collection of colonies right up to the 20th century. So if you're looking for frontier authenticity, that's what you go for. We'll put a link to that molasses syrup recipe from Imbibe Magazine right in the show notes, and... Once again, returning to that issue of conversion, I really wouldn't use more than a quarter ounce liquid measure of this molasses syrup in your old-fashioned, being that it's a rich, simple ratio. Instead of a one-to-one, it's a two-to-one sugar-to-water ratio. And also because that molasses is definitely going to assert itself in a big way. So, you've got yourself your drink now. You're enjoying your first experience with our Frontier Sarsaparilla bitters. Why not let me 
at this point, regale you with some thrilling, inspiring, and often just plain bizarre facts and anecdotes about the cocktails and cocktail culture of the American frontier. Sounds kind of nice, right? Now, when it comes to telling a story, I'm a really logical guy, and I don't like people on the internet poking holes in my content. So first, I want to set a couple definitions about what the North American frontier is and whose cocktails and cocktail culture we're talking about in this episode. Starting with that first question, the what of the frontier, and to a large extent the who, depends entirely on the when. That's what makes this episode a bit of a trip through time. Getting into the etymology of the word frontier, we fall down a pretty fun little temporal rabbit hole. Frontier, derived from the French fronte, derived from the Latin France, derived from the Proto-Indo-European bron and bren, both of which indicate an edge or projection like a sword or the prow of a ship. So throughout history, the idea of the frontier is literally something that sticks out or borders a foreign substance what we today in the startup world refer to alternatively as the cutting edge or the bleeding edge, depending on where you stand. Anatomically speaking, the Latin word frons also refers to the forehead or brow, which juts out into the world as an expression of your feelings. That's the part of the skull that houses the frontal lobe, and even though in Roman times folks thought that emotions were housed in the liver, clearly there was some connection lying just below the surface. And strangely, these old Norse and Latin word origins gel pretty well with how we think of our own frontier heritage. The frontier is edgy, bloody, and the heroes who survived best found ways to harden themselves against danger. In another respect, the frontier is exciting, thrilling, possessing the capability both for great opportunity, the chance to, for example, manifest your own destiny, and also unspeakable horrors. Here we're talking about painted savages and grizzly bears. These optimistic dreams and nightmares are all brought to you by the frontal lobe. We know that the frontier is the edge of what the majority of people would call the civilized world, and that it was a place of both great danger and great opportunity. In the 16 and 1700s, the American frontier was kind of this understood line drawn from north to south down the western border of the Appalachian Mountains. And this was largely fine. The foothills, coastal plains, fast-flowing rivers, and deep-water ports to the east of the frontier were just perfect for setting up urban hubs from which these colonies and later states could govern themselves. So for a while couple hundred years, in fact, the frontier wasn't on the minds of most common people who were setting up their farms and businesses in the new world. But that doesn't mean that the guys, and they were all guys, in high offices weren't daydreaming about all that awesome lumber and farmland and gold that could be lying just on the other side of those fairly unintimidating mountains. So, Despite the normal person being largely content east of the Appalachians for the first couple hundred years of our nation's history, there were still plenty of folks who were absorbed in extending the frontier, in pushing that blade further into the tender, unexploited meat of the continent, and it is largely the commercial, political, and military concerns of these groups and individuals that are responsible for creating the expansive North American frontier that we think of today. 
Now, we're going to pause here for a moment while we're still largely east of the Mississippi and just briefly mention that other question I raised a few tangents ago, the question of whose cocktails and cocktail culture we're talking about in this episode. The answer is, when it comes to drinking in those early days of our nation, there were two types of folks, rich and poor. And that's a distinction I'm going to use fairly often when I talk about certain cocktails and cocktail ingredients in this episode because it really helps you understand who had access to what and subsequently what purpose these various alcoholic beverages served. Starting in the very early days, those simple times when the Appalachians were the bleeding edge of the frontier, what were the rich folks imbibing and what did the poor folks scrape by with? Well, you have to remember that in the 16 and 1700s, cocktails weren't a thing yet. If you listen to our last episode, you'll recall that this is the high age of punch, that wonderful five-ingredient elixir born in India that migrated its way across the world aboard British freight ships. And for the colonists, England is where all things fashionable and popular came from. So if you were part of the landed gentry in the New World, it was sort of your job to take whatever the latest fad was in England and make it part of your next party in Philadelphia or Boston or Baltimore. So what happened is in country taverns and wealthy estates alike, punch was the popular thing to drink in the 16 and 1700s for anyone who had some money to spare. If you didn't have all that much jingle in your pocket, you were likely to partake in something more along the lines of weak beer, country cider, or, if you were lucky, a nice whiskey. I say whiskey because this was produced in the more rural areas that grew and harvested the base grains you would need to make such a spirit, like corn, rye, wheat, and barley. Rum and brandy were also popular in the colonies, but... At least early on, you'd really only come across these spirits in wealthier settings, and often in the punch bowl. There was one really heavy hitter in the whiskey world that reigned supreme as our nation's frontier began to edge westward in those years following the revolution. That was Old Monongahela Rye Whiskey. This stuff was produced in the watershed of the Monongahela River, spanning south-central Pennsylvania, western Maryland, and northeastern West Virginia, and it was a staple renowned for both its quality and its drinkability. Monongahela rye was one of the first distinctly American spirits, and you can read about some of the production and aging attributes that makes it special in the show notes page where we link to a few resources. But the most important thing to note here is that as eyes were turning toward the frontier, rural Americans were beginning to form their own cultural identity, and they took great pride in the spirits they distilled. Now, let's fast forward a bit. So far, we've been hovering right around the time of the American Revolution, small country, relatively distinct and stable frontier, although I'm sure there's some disgruntled historians out there who would disagree, but nonetheless quick jump through our timeline here. In the year 1800, we've got the Louisiana Purchase, which more than doubles the entire landmass of the United States, and all for the bargain price of $15 million. Then, 1805, Lewis and Clark Expedition, that famous journey to locate the Northwest Passage, or the water route to the Pacific Ocean, didn't pan out for them. In the 1810s and 20s, we've got the Missouri Compromise that sets kind of the rules and lays out a path to statehood in certain territories of the country in that new Louisiana purchase. And in 
as well as some treaties with Britain and Russia to establish the northernmost boundaries of our nation, our current-day border with Canada. In the 1830s, we've got the Texas Revolution breaking that future state away from the rule of Mexico. And then, 10 years after that, we've got President James K. Polk, who extends the landmass of the nation yet again by initiating the Mexican-American War, which ended in the Mexican Cession and the Gadsden Purchase. It gave us California and the entire American Southwest. So, In the period of about 40 years, we go from a country with a pretty straightforward little life tucked between the Appalachians and the Atlantic, with a relatively stable frontier, to a country that's so big and so wide open that it's literally bursting with both danger and opportunity. You got a gun, Lily? Or with a This is the American frontier we think of in our imagination, filled with mountain men and hostile Native Americans, amber waves of grain, and dramatic mesa-studded sunsets. This is the myth of the American West. This is what sold dime store cowboy novels and created the characters that made John Wayne and Clint Eastwood famous. This is when brave Americans in the East gazed westward with both hope and trepidation loaded up their wagons, tightened their belts, and started walking. And they brought their liquor with them. I think this is a nice time to talk about another excellent cocktail we've developed specifically for our frontier sarsaparilla bitters. We call it the Fur Trapper's Daughter, and it's made with a fusion of French and American ingredients, which makes sense because before the time of the Louisiana Purchase, French fur trappers were some of the first folks who ventured beyond the Mississippi and into the Rockies and beyond. Lewis and Clark even employed such a Frenchman named Charbonneau, to help guide them on their journey. To make this drink, you're going to need one and a half ounces of cognac or brandy, three quarters of an ounce of apple whiskey, here you can use Applejack or Calvados, a quarter ounce of orange liqueur, Cointreau or Grand Marnier work nicely, and several dashes of our Frontier Sarsaparilla bitters. You've got a lot of flexibility in this drink, which is great. You can kind of pick your adventure with an American Applejack or a French Calvados, you can even pick your price point with an aged or unaged orange liqueur. So any way you spin it, you can't really go wrong. All you got to do is add these ingredients to a mixing glass with ice, stir it well, and then strain into a coupe glass. And for a garnish, I think a ribbon of apple peel could work really nicely. Or if you want to go for a brighter option, use a lemon twist, which is going to complement and kind of accentuate the dark velvety sweetness of the brandy. So, now that you've got drink number two in hand, we've arrived at a place where the American frontier really comes into its own. After a brief and bloody interruption by the American Civil War, the railroad starts opening up the frontier to more and speedier settlement, and the telegraph begins to connect these individuals and their exploits with business interests and news-hungry audiences in the East. 
Remember when I talked about those wealthy Americans in the 1700s waiting for news of the latest fashions from London? Well, the same thing was kind of happening here, except it happened faster. And more of those wealthy folks from the East could just kind of hop on a train and arrive at the quote-unquote frontier after just a few days. It was these improvements in access and communication that spurred a whole ton of economic and technological development, all of which paved the way for the rise of the cocktail. Over time, a few places became very important metropolitan centers in the West. San Francisco, of course, which exploded after the gold rush that began in 1849. Then there was Salt Lake City, Denver, Dodge City, Kansas City, a whole bunch of others in Texas and the Deep Southwest as well. And these places were where the wealthy transplants from back east, the new money from frontier entrepreneurs, and the everyday ranch hands and cowpokes would mingle, share news, have a drink or five, and yes, occasionally bathe. Which brings us to our question again, what were the rich folks imbibing and what were the poor folks willing? This was the time when saloons came into full swing, some as standalone establishments and some housed in the fancier hotels where people of means were lodged. In response to the question of what types of drinks were commonly consumed in the Old West saloons, Frontier Fair columnist Sherry Monahan says, quote, While it's true that wine, beer, and whiskey were largely consumed in most Western saloons, many also offered fancy mixed drinks. They were quite popular in the wealthier communities like San Francisco, Denver, and Dodge City, where bars served drinks such as the gin sling, mint julep, and whiskey punch. And... Arizona state historian Marshall Trimble adds, depending on the location and year, a shot of whiskey usually cost around a quarter. Beer was around 10 cents a glass, and the mixed drinks went up from that price. From what I can gather online, personally, skilled craftsmen were often paid somewhere around two bucks a day, and we can assume that other trades kind of spread out from there. Um, some getting paid a little bit more, many getting paid quite a bit less. The bottom line is this. If you weren't a business owner or a wealthy carpetbagger from back east, chances are you were on the lookout for affordable booze wherever you can find it and pretty much whatever it tasted like. So for a little inspiration about just what this stuff was and what it was called, I visited the Old West Glossary of Strong Drink online to see what cowpokes were calling their hooch, and I was not disappointed. This is a really funny little resource. Uh, it's really just a blog post from 2013, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's just got this whole massive list of really funny, kind of quirky American words, and a lot of them, especially in the strong drink section, refer to whiskey. So some of the colorful names for the absolute roughest whiskey and illegally fortified or distilled spirits include Bluestone, Bug Juice, Forty Rod, Fusel Oil, Nose Paint, Red Eye, Stagger Juice, Tanglefoot, Toper, and Valley Tan, just to name a few. And you really can't help but lapse into that accent there. It's just, uh, some of those phrases are just delicious. And... There are actually a couple items on this list where you can kind of identify the cost-saving aspect for these thirsty lower-class frontiersmen. One is the quote-unquote fusel oil that I mentioned above, 
which kind of served as a rotating tap as a manner of speaking, but really it was just any fermented beverage that either a saloon owner or maybe somebody uh, who had a wagon would offer straight from the barrel for an affordable price. It was basically the PBR Tallboy of the West. And the beauty of fusel oil is that you could use whatever was in season. In the winter, it was probably closer to beer made using grain or starchy roots. And in the summer, you could use anything from apples to grapes to cactus fruit, depending on what nature or your local farmer had to offer. So fusel oil was great and often very cheap. And another slightly less honorable practice that was often used by saloon owners was cutting or fortifying these spirits with all manner of other ingredients to make the barrel or the bottle last a little longer and perhaps keep their prices lower than the saloon on the other side of town. You'll see this practice come back about 80 years later during Prohibition when booze was also pretty hard to come by. But enough about these crusty gauchos and penniless drifters. What if you were a well-to-do lady or gentleman who just arrived on the latest train from Chicago? Perhaps you might be more enticed by a so-called fancy mixed drink that you'd need to specify by name to avoid some of the questionable concoctions that some of these saloons were obviously serving. And chances are there'd be some sort of palatable option for you. There are a whole swarm of drinks that became popular around this time that were all kind of orbiting and being pulled in the direction of the cocktail, including the sangaree, which was basically any beer, wine, or spirit cut with water, sweetened with sugar, and then topped with spice like nutmeg, kind of like a lazy punch. Then there was the sling, which included two ounces of a spirit, one teaspoon of sugar, one ounce of water, and a small lump of ice. And of course, as the 19th century drew on, there were the popular juleps and smashes, which included shaved ice, fruit, herbs, and garnishes, and in some cases, multiple liquors. Another benefit of more transportation and improved technology was carbonation. And this is where you see sodas made from citrus and various other flavoring agents, including, lo and behold, sarsaparilla, becoming popular mixers, especially for lighter drinks in warmer climates. As you can see, this is the setting in which punches, toddies, slings, and tonics that had followed settlers across the frontier from back east became transformed into the cocktails that characterized the golden age of pre-prohibition drinking toward the end of the 1800s. And there was one big commodity that spurred this advance, ice. Think about it. If you're a saloon owner in a boom town like the one we see in the popular HBO series Deadwood, are you really concerned with ice? No. You're going to get the miners, cattle hands, various foreigners, and ladies of loose character all liquored up as quickly and as efficiently as possible so you can part them with more of their money. And that meant whiskey shots and beer, which have minimal storage and refrigeration considerations. Chances are you, as a saloon owner, haven't been around long enough or don't plan to stay around long enough once the railroad moves on to worry about building an insulated ice house, then waiting for winter, if you're someplace cool enough for that to happen, cutting ice on a lake, lugging it to the ice house, and dealing with all the labor and upkeep that would basically amount to a whole other business in and of itself, and one that would fail immediately if the demand wasn't there. 
So it's no wonder that Frontier Slings and Toddies, both precursors to the cocktail, were served either room temperature or hot, just like punch. But in the 1850s, in the midst of the California gold rush, things began to change. I'm going to read a passage by cocktail historian David Wondrich on this subject because he said it better than I can. He always says it better than I can, and he actually put in the time to do some primary source research here. This passage is from his book Imbibe, and it starts out fairly nonchalant and historical, but it escalates quickly in terms of what all this means for the cocktail. So perk up a bit as you listen to this. Quote, The gold rush may not have changed every aspect of American life, but it sure galvanized the sporting fraternity. As Bayard Taylor observed when he toured the diggings in 1849 in the easy-come, easy-go atmosphere of California, weather-beaten tars, wiry, delving Irishmen, and stalwart foresters from the wilds of Missouri became a race of Sybarites and Epicureans, he said. This was manifested most characteristically in their sudden and surprising fondness for champagne and all kinds of cordials and choice liquors. One of the places this expressed itself was in the cocktail, a luxury that, at a bitter to a pop, even a busted flush gambler or empty pan prospector could afford. That taste for the finest extended to ice. John Borthwick, a Scot who spent much of the early 1850s in California, later recalled of the mining town of Sonora that, quote, snow was packed in on mules 30 or 40 miles from the Sierra Nevada, and no one took even a cocktail without its being iced. In any case, by the end of the decade, an iced cocktail was no longer an item of wonder, not just in California, but in the rest of the country as well. The advent of ice brought in a few other changes. Since granulated sugar didn't dissolve well in cold liquor, mixologists learned to replace it with syrup. And why stop with plain sugar syrup? Why not throw in a little raspberry or almond syrup if you've got it, or even a few dashes of some fancy imported cordial? And once you've pre-dissolved the sugar, you won't need that toddy stick to break up the lumps anymore. You can stir the drink with a simple teaspoon, or more theatrically, pour it back and forth between two glasses or a glass, and one of those new tin shakers, end quote. So, all these burly, bearded miners could work back-breaking, dangerous jobs all day, but they couldn't bear the thought of a cocktail made without ice. Is it me? Or is it starting to smell a bit like hipster in here? Give these guys a smartphone, some rich parents, and a 90s childhood, and I think they'd get along just fine with a large portion of today's cocktail crowd. And here, I would say I digress, except for the fact that affluence and access to ingredients are probably the two most important factors in the rise of the cocktail. In fact, the forces at play during those early days when proto-cocktails morphed into the final cast of characters and techniques that we know and love today are very similar to the ones that spurred the rebirth of the cocktail in the late 1990s and 2000s. Affluence and diversity. Both good things both necessary for the cocktail to develop, but as we know from the stark divide between the drinking culture of rich and poor, it's a necessity that keeps some folks out in the cold. At this point, I consider jumping into kind of a theoretical tangent on how we can use this lesson to make cocktails more accessible today, but I know how much you guys hate when I do that. So instead, I'll mention a few tidbits about the people 
who are kept most in the cold during the entire history of the frontier. People who have a stereotypically dark relationship with alcohol to this day. Native Americans. Now, it's tempting to say that the First Nations people didn't have any contact with alcohol until they came into contact with European settlers. However, that's definitely not the case. Pre-Columbian tribes in present-day Mexico cultivated and fermented agave plants to create an alcoholic beverage called pulque, and the Apache are known for making a corn beer called tiswin. It's also likely that many Native Americans also used the fruit of the prickly pear cactus to create some sort of wine-like beverage. And in this same kind of world, we can't forget the use of mind-altering substances like peyote and other psychotropic plants and mushrooms that stretches well into the distant past for these Native American nations. So to say that Native Americans were completely sober would definitely be a fallacy. But it's clear that as these people were struck with atrocity after atrocity and penned into reservations, alcohol certainly offered a dangerous escape from their situation that has plagued their communities right up to the present day and resulted in the harmful stereotype of the drunk Indian. I think what all of this goes to show is that the frontier was a hard place to live. And people back then of all types wanted to escape a bit and refresh themselves however they could. If they couldn't literally shake off the dust of the trail, well, then maybe they could at least take it off their mind for a while by locating a bottle of old Monongahela, a glass of fusel oil, or maybe even a bartender who could mix you up a gin sling. As access to ice refrigeration, and the railroad accelerated, access to fancy drinks expanded, and a wonderful era of cross-pollination between cities developed in which the nation's best bartenders, like the famous Jerry Thomas, began setting down their recipes so that people all over the world could learn how to make these fine concoctions. This was the golden age of the cocktail, and it is the subject of another episode, but if you're the type of person who's enamored with the glitz and glam of luxurious city bars and perfectly crafted cocktails, my biggest ask of you right now would be to always remember that these would never have been invented unless a bunch of smelly, stubborn miners packed their mules with snow and refused to drink their libations unchilled. That about does it for our episode on Frontier Cocktails. As I ride off into the sunset here, I hope you'll be inspired to do some of your own research on our nation's mixological roots and maybe even pick up a bottle of our Frontier Sarsaparilla Bitters to help with your experiments. Cheers. New year, new outro comments, so listen up. If you liked this episode, spread the word. Tell us, tell your friends, tell your dad it's time he tried a new cocktail. Ask your mom where she put your granddad's cocktail shaker. Start having conversations about cocktails. You can join in our conversation by tagging or mentioning us on Facebook or Instagram at 
modernbarcart, or feel free to type a long flowing email for me to read and send it along to podcast at modernbarcart.com. We're real people and we actually respond to your comments and your emails. Also, if you want to go ahead and break the fifth wall and actually become a part of the Modern Bar Cart podcast by allowing me to interview you, that email I just mentioned is also where you can go and introduce yourself. Keep an eye out for new products as we continue to build out our awesome line of cocktail mixers, accessories, and gear. And until next time, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.